Open up to Colossians chapter 4. We are concluding our sermon series on Colossians this morning. And I want to start with this picture. This is called the, I want to make sure I get this right, Sacandaga River. I hope I'm saying that right. Probably not. It's not much to look at. Kind of more of a creek here. Um, but it's beautiful. This is a place that my family and I particularly enjoy. Although this is the part that we really like. This is known as Augur Falls. Uh, this is in the Adirondacks, just outside of Speculator, and it's one of our favorite places. We go there every summer to spend some time, and we always try to hike to the falls. It's a very easy hike. That's why we like it. Um, falls are nice, too. So, so you have the Sacandaga River. It's, it's okay. Goes to Augur Falls. I mean, not the most impressive falls, but it's pretty. It's nice. All of this runs into... An comes the Hudson River. That's pretty impressive. Okay, maybe not pretty, but impressive. It's a whole lot of water moving in a whole lot of direction there through a huge city, lots of shipping, and it flows out to the ocean. So you have a small creek, goes through several different waterfalls, joins together with others, and becomes a massive river and flows into the ocean. Why? Why does the water from the Sacandaga River flow to the Atlantic Ocean through the Hudson River rather than going up to, say, Lake Ontario or the St. Lawrence Seaway? And the answer is a watershed. That there is something about the land and the way that it is sloped that water that falls on one side goes in one direction and water that falls on the other side goes in another direction. And I've called the sermon series Watershed because as we've looked at this letter to the Colossians from the Apostle Paul, it's my understanding Looking at the overall theme of what Paul's talking about, he's trying to grab their attention and say, Jesus makes the difference. He makes all the difference in the world. Jesus is our watershed. And I think we need to ask ourselves as we conclude this this sermon series on this book, and, and really every day of our lives, what makes the difference in our lives? What determines the course of our lives? Is it ourselves? I set the course. I determine who I am. I determine what I do. What I want lays out the path for my feet. Is is that what determines the course of our lives? Maybe it's the world around us. Well, we just go with the flow. We just bend and move depending on the culture and keeping people happy and wanting to please people. What is it that determines the course of our lives? We started this sermon series back in early May. This is, I believe, the 12th sermon in the series. We've picked apart this book, looking at sometimes small areas, sometimes larger areas, to really understand what difference does Jesus Christ make. And so today, today we're going to conclude this. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 4, uh, some of it more intentionally, the rest of it very quickly. And then I want to look back over some of the themes from the rest of the book. I try, uh, when I come up with headings for my, my sermons and like subheadings and stuff, I want to make sure they're memorable and, and catchy. It's really hard to do in the last chapter of the book. So here you go. This is the memorable and catchy title. Prayer, Proclaiming the Gospel, Salty Conversations, and Personal Greetings. 
I love Paul. Paul gets to the end of his letters and it's kind of like, oh, and one more thing. Oh yeah, and one more thing. And you got to get this in there. He's just like, boom, 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 throwing all these things in there. So there's the catchy title for you. Prayer, proclaiming the gospel, salty conversations, and personal greetings. All of this is coming uh, first and foremost out of verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in the passage there. We'll skim through the rest of it quickly. Let me read verses 2 through 6. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. He picks up this idea of prayer. He's talked to them about this incredible deep theology and who the church is and how we're to live, how we're to cast off the old life, put on the new risen, resurrected life of Jesus. He's talked about how to live out the gospel in our day-to-day lives. And then he comes to the end and he says, now focus on, be devoted to prayer. Prayer, I believe, is, is like the breathing of faith. If you're alive, you have to breathe. You can go through small periods of time without breathing, very small. But, but if you're alive, one of the symptoms or the natural overflow or the outflow of being alive is you're going to breathe. You have to breathe. Faith is this thing within us that is trusting in the Lord. Prayer is the expression of that trust. God, I need you. You are God. I am not. You are in control. I am not. And I need you and I'm trusting in you and I'm praying and declaring who God is and bringing my circumstances and the circumstances of others before the God that we trust. It is an expression of faith. The English Standard Version has continue steadfastly in prayer. The NIV has devote yourself to prayer. But I love the challenge there. Are you devoted in prayer? Are we steadfast in prayer? I got to tell you this part of the sermon, I'm I'm really preaching to myself here. I can tell those times in my life when I'm not trusting the Lord as I should because I'm not in prayer. When I'm not in prayer, it is a sure sign I'm depending on myself. We need to be devoted. Talks about at the end of verse two, being watchful and thankful. We need to be aware that faith, that isn't coupled with prayer, can easily be undermined and eroded by the life and this world and things that are going on in this world and people around us. So we need to be watchful and be thankful to focus our eyes and the eyes of our faith on Jesus Christ. So Paul starts by just kind of generally, okay, focus on prayer. And then he turns to asking for prayer. This makes some of us uncomfortable. We don't want to ask for prayer. We don't want to admit that we have needs. But Paul easily comes right out and says, and pray for us also. He's going to ask for some things for them to pray for. Now, watch what he asks. This I find so, so challenging. He says, verse 3, and pray for us. To us is probably Paul and his traveling companions. He often ministered with groups of people uh, in the cities that he was in. So he says, pray for us also, 
or two, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, in chains, Paul's in prison. It's probably house arrest, but he's probably literally chained to a Roman guard. I believe I said last week that he was more than likely in Ephesus. I think that was wrong. I don't know if you care, but he was probably more than likely in Rome. Okay, just in case somebody was taking notes and like, that's not right. We're not really sure, but he was probably in Rome at this time. But we do know he's in chains. He is in prison. Do you notice what Paul doesn't ask them to pray for? If I'm in prison, especially as a minister of the gospel, I want to get out and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and preach and just, you know, get the gospel out into the world. So what am I going to ask for prayer for? Hey, I'm in prison. Could you pray that I could get out of prison? That is not what Paul prays for or asks for prayer for. Does he ask for health? Being in prison was difficult. Now, our system today, when you're in prison, the government provides for you and our taxes go to pay for that. It was different then. The person in prison had to provide for their own needs. The Roman government did not. So they needed people to bring food and money and clothing. They needed help. It was easy to get sick. It was easy to go hungry. Does he pray for health and say, pray that I could stay healthy? No. Does he ask for safety? He is in Rome awaiting trial, a trial that very well might lead to his death. Does he say, hey, pray that the Lord would keep me safe in this difficult time? No. And I want to be clear here, and I want to be very careful. It's not wrong to pray for those things. Okay, I need to get that out there. We can search the Psalms. There are many times in the Psalms that the writer of, of a particular Psalm cries out for help, whether it's sickness or danger, and they're praying for deliverance and safety. It's not wrong to pray for those things. I want to be very clear. But here with Paul, we have this incredible example where his focus is not on himself. So where is his focus? What does he want them to pray for? He says that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now, could take that and say, well, see there, he's praying to be let out, open the door for the message. I don't think that's what he meant. Paul did not believe that he had to get out of jail in order to preach the gospel. He, in fact, believed that God used his time in prison for the sake of the gospel. We can look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Paul writes in this other letter, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, he's talking about being in jail, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So when Paul asks for this open door, he's praying or he's asking them to pray for more opportunities for him to share and preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's what he wants them. At the end of the letter, he's like, this is what I need. I need you to pray for me that I could proclaim the gospel. Where's Paul's focus? It's not on himself, his personal situation. It's on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul naturally then turns from this praying for gospel opportunities and asking for them to pray for that to sharing the gospel and challenging the Colossians to live in such a way that the gospel is proclaimed and demonstrated in the way they live as a church. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. He's speaking to the church here. So church, listen. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And that first phrase, be wise in how you act toward outsiders. We could read that with kind of a fear mentality, right? Oh, the world, it's out to get us, and the world is changing, and we're scared of things going on in the world. We need to be careful. Paul's saying, be careful. He, he is saying, be careful. He's saying, be wise. But he's not saying, put your head down and hide. He's saying, you have a mission. And we need to live on that mission to take the gospel to that world. And we need to be wise in how we do it. We need to listen to the wisdom of Jesus Christ as we carry out the mission of Jesus Christ. And the Greek here is whenever you see kind of be wise in the New Testament and the English translations, it's usually translating a Greek word or phrase of walk wisely. And I like that. It's hard to kind of bring that into English sometimes. But it's this, where are you putting your feet? How, how are you stepping every day? Are you being conscious of how you're walking each and every day? Be wise. Think about it. Be intentional about it. Specifically, be intentional toward those who are not Christians. I think as Christians, we tend to err on one side or another of this. Sometimes we focus on how we treat everybody out in the world, and we're so careful to show love and mercy and grace out there in the world, and then we treat each other like dirt. Other times there are those, it's like we're so intentional, and we put on the good Christian face and how we treat each other in the church, and then we go out and we live however we want, and we treat those people like dirt, or we talk bad about them. We need to do both. Both how we treat each other and how we treat people outside the church demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It shows that we have been changed by Christ. And so Paul tells them they need to be wise. And he's going to get very specific. Look at verse 6. He says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Those words, full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's, it's this idea of being intentional to speak in such a way that demonstrates and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Full of grace might literally mean, for Paul, when he takes this idea of something full of grace, it might actually mean full of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speak in such a way that you are proclaiming the gospel. It could also mean be gracious, simply be kind. I think it's kind of a mixture of both. I think the kindest thing we can do for anybody is to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel that saves them. 
But how we talk to them, we've got to be careful. We don't get to be mean to those out in the world just because they believe differently or think differently or live differently than us. We don't change what we believe to suit them, but we don't treat them in such a way that says, you're a horrible, awful person. We need to be gracious in how we speak to those who think and believe differently than us. It's a season with salt. It's kind of this idea of preserving and making something taste good. He doesn't mean salty in terms of like an old sailor and, you know, using off-color words. I didn't, I just realized it could be interpreted that way as I think of how I wrote that. That's not what I mean. That's not what Paul means. But he means, are you speaking in such a way that is intentional and good for other people? All of this going together, knowing how to answer everybody, all of this comes together to say, be intentional. Christians, how often do we get in conversations with people, maybe unsafe family members, you're at a barbecue, they bring up politics, health, policies, culture, whatever it is, and it's like that switch flips. Oh, you, you're that person, and we just lay into them. That person's a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. And we need to stop and say, am I being intentional to be full of grace, to have salt-preserving conversations that proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to be careful how we speak. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And I love that. that. Always be prepared to give an answer. That assumes people are looking at you and saying there's something different about you. That we are living in such a way that makes them want to ask, why are you the way you are? And we can point them to Jesus Christ. When my wife and I lived in Connecticut, we, we had the, the terrifying opportunity to be on a radio talk show. Uh, we had friends, that uh, husband and wife team that had a radio talk show. Um, I don't know how big it was. I don't know. Maybe 10 people were listening to us. I don't know. They were trying to get syndicated nationally, though, so I think they were doing okay. I don't know if that ever happened, you know? It's not important. Okay. Um, And so they asked my wife and I to be on this talk show. So we go into a radio studio booth, and we're sitting there, and and our friends are across there on stools, and we're sitting here on stools, and we got the big mic in front of us and the headphones on. And, um, you know, it was one of those moments like, what are we doing? And I'll tell you, it was terrifying for me because I thought every word matters. I'm, I'm on display for Jesus Christ and my words are going to go out to the whole world. I know that's a bit much, but <laughs> don't we live in that moment every day? Shouldn't we have that mentality every conversation? Not just in the extreme, well, one day if I'm on the radio, then I'll be careful. You're on the radio now. You're living the megaphone. What is it you're proclaiming for Jesus Christ? So here Paul writes these last few instructions. He wants them to pray. He wants them to pray for him, specifically for the spread of the gospel. He wants them to speak in a way that demonstrates and proclaims the gospel. And then we get to verses 7 through 18. This is a long list of names. And and I thought about just skimming over it and not reading it, but we've read every other passage. So bear with me. We're going to read the rest of Colossians just to be complete and finish the book. 
I will try to get the names as good as I can. Verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the purpose, the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. That's not Jesus Christ, somebody else. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. It's an interesting passage. And and there's a lot of very interesting stories looking at individual people. We're not going to do that uh, just for the sake of time. It is interesting that it's such a long list. In fact, as I understand it, there's only one other letter in the New Testament that has a similarly long list of names at the end of it, and that's the book of Romans. And as I was thinking about that, I thought that's very interesting because both Romans and Colossians are written to people Paul has never met. He's never been there. When he wrote Romans, he hadn't been to Rome. So he was writing in the hope that he would go there. When he writes Colossians, he didn't start this church. So one of the reasons there's such a long list of names is that this is Paul's resume. These are his references. He's going, you know this guy that came from your church? He's with me. He knows me. Say hi to so-and-so that's there. They'll vouch for me. They know me. Paul knew that he had lived his life in such a way that people that met him and interacted with him would say, this guy's serious about Jesus Christ. I wonder if he was writing about Orchard, would he put us, each one of us, on that list? The other thing... He says at the end, I think we need to touch on, he just says, talks about this letter that was written to the church in Laodicea. We're not really sure what letter that was. It's possible this is the letter we know as Ephesians. Um, Ephesians was written to, as kind of a circular letter to be distributed to a lot of different churches. Maybe it had gone to Laodicea at this time. It's also possible it's just a letter of Paul's we don't have anymore. We don't always have everything that they wrote. And I love what he says in verse 17 then about this guy, Archippus. He says, see to it that you complete the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I don't know who he was. There's, there's some guy in history who was like the leader over an area of churches, but we're not really sure this guy. They knew him. He knew himself. But what I love is that Paul's going, hey, you, keep going. Don't stop. It's getting hard right now. Keep going. God's given you a a ministry. Keep going. Don't give up. He says here at the end of this letter, 
Live the gospel, especially in how you speak. Pray for gospel opportunities. Be careful and aware of false alternatives. Be ready to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he gives us a list of people who are doing just that. Jesus was their watershed. He's writing to them because he believes that Jesus Christ should make a difference in their life. And he's talking to them and reminding them about that important truth. I looked back at my notes from the first sermon in this series. And I asked a question. And I said that in this series I want to explore this question. What does it mean to be a Christian in the world today? And the follow-up question was, what is our watershed that determines who we are? Here, in Colossae, ancient Greece, overtaken by the Roman Empire, their culture, their world was constantly shifting. Things that have been felt and thought about and believed and long held as solid and dear were changing with the winds of their culture constantly. It's not unlike what we face today and frankly what the church of Jesus Christ has always faced. We live in a world that does not accept Jesus as Lord and King. And we feel that tension, we experience that tension as we try to live out our faith in this world. The Roman culture that they were facing had very different moral standards than what they believed as Christians. In fact, many of the things in the the Roman culture were offensive to the Christian ideas. Many of the things. They also lived in a world where Jewish teachings would often come into the church after the gospel had been planted. These people, often called Judaizers, would come in and it was like, you've you've received Jesus and that's great, but now you have to do these extra things. Make no mistake, the gospel of Jesus Christ is based on, rooted in the Old Testament, and the Jewishness of God's people and how he worked in them. But it all led up to Jesus. There's a famous phrase, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. When we add to our faith, okay, trust in Jesus, but then also eat this certain thing or do this certain thing or do this certain ritual. When we add those things to it, we lose the truth that we're saved only in Jesus Christ. And so here they are facing these tensions from the culture and this tension from false teachers. And Paul addresses these in the book. And here's the big picture that I see in Colossians. The first thing that he tells them to do, and I think we still need to do today, is focus on Jesus Christ. Well, duh. I mean, this seems so obvious, but sometimes when something's so obvious, we just skip right over it. Yeah, it's great. Just tell me how to be obedient. Oh, that's great. But just tell me how to talk to this person. Start by keeping your eyes locked on the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we take our eyes off of Christ and put them on anything else, whether it be our world, ourselves, other ideas, or religious actions, we lose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our watershed. Focus 
on Jesus Christ. That's why Paul spends so much time at the beginning of this letter writing about who Jesus is. Listen to chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Focus there. Lock your eyes on Jesus Christ. Let he be, or let him be the watershed that changes us. He goes on. Listen to the change he talks about. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Hear the difference that Christ makes? We've been brought from death and under the wrath of God and being rebels to God's purpose to being saved by God's Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, focus there. Christians, I don't know what each one of you is going through. And maybe you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't... I know some of you and some of the things you're going through, but but here's the thing. No matter what you're going through, what you need is Jesus Christ. You need a bigger picture of him. You need to trust him more. You need to know that he died. The son of God died in your place that you might have life. That will give you perspective on anything you go through. And you need to hear, especially if you're a Christian, this is your marching order. This is your mission to demonstrate and proclaim that gospel to this crazy mixed up world. That's why we are here. So the first thing he says is focus on Christ. And the second thing is be a church, Christians that are gathered together, be a church that proclaims and demonstrates the gospel. Look at Colossians 2, 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul keeps coming back to, do you know who you are in Jesus Christ? In chapter 2, verse 20, he talks about since you died with Christ. And then he says, get rid of those things for which Christ died. Get rid of the sin in your life that caused Christ to have to go to the cross. He died in your place. Get those things out of your life. Chapter 3, verse 1, since then you've been raised with Christ. He says, live this new life. You've been changed by Jesus Christ. Live like it. Trust in the work of Christ in your life. He goes on in chapter 3 to apply this to all of their relationships. No matter what relationship you're in, no matter how hard that relationship, your call as a follower of Jesus Christ is to trust in and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must, as a church, proclaim the gospel. But equally, we must demonstrate, 
show the gospel in how we treat one another and how we live in the world outside of these walls. My wife and I just the other day were talking about the importance of the church having a gospel culture. Gospel proclamation is essential. Gospel culture is just as essential. You know that a church has a gospel culture when we treat one another according to the standards of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When our counsel to one another and our conversations with one another are full of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're not coming to church saying, what can I get out of this? Me, me, me. I want to get what I want. But instead, we're focused on Jesus Christ and pointing one another to him. It's one of the things I love about Orchard. I believe as I listen to teachers and leaders of small groups, and I pray as I preach up here and as others come, I believe we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know what's awesome? Is that when I'm out there in the hallways or listening to conversations in classrooms, I hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Must have a gospel culture in the world. Jesus must be our watershed. He determines who we are. He determines how we are to live. He is our mission and our purpose. Our lives, like rain falling on the ground, have been diverted in a different direction because of who Jesus Christ is. So is Jesus the watershed of your life? Some people try to ignore Jesus. Try to ignore who he is. And what he's done and just say, I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. And they just want to keep him out there somewhere. Jesus, leave me alone. Jesus doesn't want to leave you alone because he loves you too much for that. He loved you so much that he left the throne room of heaven, died horrible death on a Roman cross, rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And he offers this new life to you as a gift. Don't ask Jesus to leave you alone. Ask him to save you and be Lord of your life. Some try to add Jesus onto onto an already busy life. We have a long list of priorities and good things in our life and things that are going on that we're focused on. And it's kind of like, yeah, Jesus, he'll just fit right in. We'll tack him onto that. Jesus is not one good thing in our lives. He is the key supreme thing that makes the difference in our life. Jesus must be the watershed issue of our identity. Some trust in Jesus. But if we really look at our hearts, we have to ask ourselves, am I just trusting to get what I want? Am I just asking, God to bless me and what I want and add good things onto my already busy life? Is it just me focused or are our eyes off of ourselves and put on our Savior, Jesus Christ? When we live this way, focused on ourselves, it makes us and our ideas the watershed. If I may be so bold, that is the American way. That is our culture. Focus on yourself how you feel, and what you want. The Bible comes along and says it was for those reasons Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross. That we could cast off focusing on ourselves and sink and focus our eyes on Jesus Christ. Jesus is our watershed. So how do we close 
this sermon series on the incredible book of Colossians, I think I'll give the Apostle Paul the last word and leave you with the words of Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord? If not, now's the time. Now's the time. Say yes to Jesus, the Son of God, who loved you enough to give his life in your place. Make him the watershed of your life that changes you eternally. And if you have received Christ, live it out. Sink your roots down in that. Focus every day when you wake up. I am changed by Jesus Christ. Preach that truth to yourself every day, every moment, and then live it out. And then live in such a way that overflows with thankfulness so that others will see and say, why do you live that way? And we can say, let me tell you about Jesus who made all the difference in my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, There is not a single person here in this room today and not a single person that has ever walked this earth apart from Jesus Christ who is worthy of the love that you give to us. We are not worthy of the price that Jesus paid on the cross to save us from our sins. And yet that's how much you loved us. That Jesus would come and die on the cross to save us. And to rise from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. And Father, if there's anybody right now going, I don't know if I've done that. I don't know if I've accepted that truth. May they take this moment to just proclaim to you in the quietness of their own hearts and minds that they would say yes to your son, Jesus. They would say, I give my life to you. I accept that you saved me through your son, Jesus. I am no longer my own. I've been bought at a price. I belong to you. May today be the moment that their life diverts from one direction to another. And Father, I know there are those here today that are struggling and have been turned and twisted around by circumstances or are struggling with things going on in our world. Help us to focus our eyes back on your son. To believe in Jesus. To understand his sovereign power and his love and his life-changing actions through his death and resurrection. Help us to remind ourselves of those things. And Father, as a local church and for other local churches around this area and around the world, may we live in such a way that demonstrates the gospel to one another and to this world that is desperately lost and needs salvation. Father, may we be intentional in how we do these things as we live Jesus as the watershed of our lives and proclaim him as the salvation for all who are in such desperate need. Pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.